Here we go. You ready to learn? I said, are you? No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. <laughs> are you ready? Okay, I'm done. <laughs> so last week we talked about specifically some things that Jesus died and was resurrected so that we could have freedom from those things. And we talked about those things. And, and if you didn't hear all of that, you can listen to our NCC More podcast and listen to the whole thing. But tonight we're going to move on to the process of freedom. So what does it look like to walk through this process? If freedom is for all of us, right, what does the process look like? So we're going to talk about a picture of the process of freedom. We're going to kind of look at a picture from a story in the Bible and see if we can kind of picture what freedom looks like. Then we're going to talk about some obstacles to the process of freedom. And then we're going to take, we're going to talk about what it takes for us to go through the process. What are the things that we're going to have to do? And then we're going to talk at the end about the best place to begin the process. And I'm really excited about it. But before we get into that, I want to throw up a disclaimer. Who likes disclaimers? I like them. I like to read all of it. The disclaimer that we're going to start with tonight is the word deliverance. Write that down. Deliverance. One of my favorite deliverance stories in the Bible is found um, a couple places. But Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, we get this glimpse into this story of a man who is described as being full of unclean spirits. This man is so strong that he can break chains. This man is so tortured that he cuts himself and cries out, the Bible says, day and night. Can we all agree that somebody like that needs freedom? Okay, good, okay. So he has this encounter with Jesus, and guess what Jesus does? He sets him free. It's this beautiful, beautiful story. It's a miracle. And by all definitions, it is deliverance. It is deliverance. Deliverance is this. It's the action of being rescued or set free. The action of being rescued or set free. So last week we talked about the fact that God rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. Some translations say he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. This instant deliverance is what he did for us. And that's really what he does for this man. He instantly delivers him. And here's a truth that we all need to understand. And we're not going to get into this tonight. But there are some things that bind us that are spiritual, There are some things like demonic oppression. That's real. And we need to be delivered from those things. And God has the power to deliver us. I've heard many stories in the 16 years that I've been walking with Jesus about people being delivered from demons, mostly overseas. But so many stories, hundreds of people, thousands of people. But... I can only count on both my hands, and I've been trying hard to do this so I can always be honest on this stage. I can only count on both of my hands and not even all of my fingers how many people that I've met who have said, I was instantly delivered from anger, or I was instantly delivered from smoking, or cussing, or lying. 
most of the people I know, including myself, have had to walk through a process. But our prayers usually sound like, God, take this away, (laughs) right? I know mine do. I still pray it. I'm just going to pray it just in case, right? God, take this anger away. Take this this inclination toward lying and fudging and telling half truth. Take just take it away so I don't have to deal with it anymore. But so often, most often, God probably I think just smiles at me and says, "No, baby. We're going to have to work this one out too." It's the process of freedom. And this is something that I feel like God really dealt with me about a few years ago, just thinking about all of this. Even people who are instantly delivered have to walk through some sort of process after that, right? The man who, the Bible says he was naked, he couldn't even keep clothes on, he had to learn how to wear clothes. Come on. No, that's funny. But seriously, right? He had to learn how to make friends. I'm pretty sure he had to learn how to deal with fear of something like that happening to him again. It's a process. Even when you're delivered, there's a process you have to walk through. So let's talk about the process of freedom. We're going to first talk about this picture of the process. Let's get a picture of it together. So there's a story in John 11. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to read some verses out of John 11. Turn there, swipe there. You know what I mean. Most of us have heard this story before, but one of Jesus' friends, his name is Lazarus, he's sick. And so Lazarus' sisters send someone to Jesus because Jesus is their friend, and they know Jesus loves him, and they know that Jesus can heal him. And so they say, can you come and help us out? And instead of leaving immediately, what does Jesus do? He waits. He delays. And when Jesus finally arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four long days. Can you imagine how long those days were for Mary and Martha? The thoughts that they had. So then Jesus finally shows up. He talks to Martha. They have this beautiful discourse. He sees Mary. They they have a few words. And then he gets to the tomb, and this is where we're going to pick up, verse 38 of John 11. Verse 38 through 44, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Let's just put ourselves in this story. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, all of us would have said this, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Jesus, are you sure you know what you're doing? Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Mm. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth 
around his face. Quick pause. When I was looking up commentaries, this is just, I just got a kick out of this. I just love commentaries. All the scholars say different things. Some of them think he was like transported out, teleported out. I just love reading it. All you sci-fi fans, come on, let's go there. Come on, the stone is rolled away, and here comes Lazarus. Or some people say he shuffled out. That's Matthew Henry. He's like, he must have. I was like, okay. Uh, some people say he's, he hopped out. Whatever you want to see, you see that. And then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Verse 44, one more time. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, the people that were there, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The ESV says, unbind him and let him go. So here is our picture. Let's try and see it. Lazarus was dead. Just like we were dead. Like we talked about last week, we were all dead in our sins and our transgressions. Lazarus was dead. Lazarus was then raised to new life. Come on. Just like we were raised to new life in Christ. Not because he had the power to do it. He was deader than a doornail, right? Can we say that? Because of no effort of his own, he was made alive the same way. By no effort of our own, we have been made alive in Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Lazarus was alive, comma, but he was bound. Lazarus was alive, but he was bound. And just like Lazarus, there are things that bind us, things that keep us from living in freedom, things that follow us from our old, dead, stinky life, things that want to hang on to us because of our sinful nature. Remember, we talked about this last week, that's, there's a sinful nature in us that wants to be resurrected. It wants to be brought back to life. His face was wrapped, which means he couldn't see clearly, he couldn't hear clearly, he couldn't speak clearly. His hands and feet were bound, which means he could not walk or run or move freely. Lazarus's grave clothes needed to be removed so that he could enjoy that new life that Jesus had resurrected him to have. And just like Lazarus, if we're going to have and enjoy the life Jesus has given us, we will have to have some things removed. So let's talk about three things that salvation does not remove. Ooh. Let's talk about it. You know, even as I was doing this, I was like, it was, it was so clear to me. I was like, oh, God, I, I'm sure I believe this at one time. I'm saved now. I'm alive. Now everything is going to be great. But there are some things that salvation does not 
remove. Let's talk about it. Number one, our memories. Our memories. The definition there is the mental capacity or faculty of retaining and reviving, resurrecting, and here we go, facts, <laughs> events, impressions, etc., or of recalling or recognizing previous experiences. I wish all of our previous experiences were instantly redeemed, but they are not. I wish that the facts and events of our past would not revive themselves when we enter into new situations and relationships, but my God, they do. I wish I could forget some of the things I did yesterday. Come on. Where I just knew I blew it. Where I disappointed myself and I knew I had disappointed. I wish I could forget the heartache, the heartbreak, the abuse, the abandonment, the betrayal, those lustful episodes. Mm the experiences with bullies and best friends, <laughs> lies I told and lies that were told on me and everything in between. But those things just don't go away because we decided to follow Jesus. Our memories color the way we see God, the way we see ourselves, the way we see others. And they help us to build the second thing that salvation does not remove. And that is our mindsets or mentalities. You pick the word you like the best. Mindsets or mentalities. This is where we have one of the best pastors in America. Because he is, I really feel like, Coach, you are dedicated. It is part of your calling to help us change our mindsets. I feel like when you're 105, you're still going to be preaching that message and changing lives all over the world. What's the definition? A fixed attitude, a fixed attitude, disposition, or mood, an intention, or inclination. Maybe we have an inclination toward negative thinking. Maybe it's part personality, part experience. Maybe we have an inclination toward lying or telling half-truths. Maybe we have a fixed attitude about love, and it's this performance-based thing we talked about last week. It's just this fixed attitude we have. Or maybe all of our lives we've had a selfish disposition. <laughs> our parents thought we'd grow out of it, but now our husband has to deal with it. <laughs> and we have selfish motives and intentions behind most of the decisions we make, but nobody else knows. Those mindsets, they aren't instantly renewed because we decide to follow Jesus. Hear me, I wish they were. Believe me. I wish we could get like a hard drive wipe, right? But it doesn't work that way. 
we have to work to develop new mindsets. Number three, our mannerisms. Our mannerisms. A habitual or characteristic manner, mode, or way of doing something. Distinctive quality or style, as in behavior or speech. If you've cussed like a sailor since you were 22, come on now, don't be surprised if it takes you a minute to change your speech. If you've had a habit of venting your anger on the person that was closest to you whenever you feel like it, don't be naive in thinking that it won't happen again, maybe tomorrow. If you're used to interrupting people and treating them rudely and being the center of attention, don't be shocked if laying your life down doesn't come naturally. Because of our memories and our mindsets and our mannerisms, we all need to, like Lazarus, remove our grave clothes and put on something new. Not just one time, but time and again. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 5 through 9. Here comes Paul again teaching us about freedom. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 9. Here's what Paul writes. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And our, this kingdom of darkness we're in, covetousness. Man, every commercial, every magazine. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must, Paul says, put them all away. And then he lists some more things. <laughs> Anger, wrath malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another while seeing that you have put off the old self. That's how you used to be. That was the old dead person. They lied. They did what was best for them in the moment. But you got to put all that off. And I know that we know this, but I just want us to think about it. Paul is not writing to sinners here as we think of sinners. He's writing to a church. He's writing to believers. And he's saying, hey, guess what? There's some things you need to put off. There are some things you need to remove. There's some things you need to discard. There's some things you need to get rid of. He says, you have put off the old self with his practices. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 10, he says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul says you have to remove the old and you have to put on 
the new. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We have to take the time to remove the earthly things, the natural things. We could put it that way. And we have to put on the heavenly things, the supernatural things. We have to take off the clothes that we were used to wearing over here in the kingdom of darkness and put on the clothes of the kingdom of light. And the designer and the maker of those clothes is God. He's the one who gets to decide what's best to put on. Back to Lazarus. Let's go back. Let's just imagine. Can you imagine Lazarus fighting this process, trying to keep his grave clothes on? Just leave me alone. I'm alive. I'm alive. You know, he couldn't even, his mouth was literally bound. Just, I got it. I'm good. What would have people thought? Man, Lazarus, Jesus, I know you resurrected him, but this man done gone crazy. He's off his head. Right? They would have said, Lazarus, no, you're not good. (laughs) You need our help. You can't see. You can hardly hear. You can't walk. You can't run. Lazarus, you need freedom. I know you're alive, but man, you look dead. He had to remove those grave clothes and put on some new clothes. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Where is the earthly stuff located? In you. In me. Okay, don't forget. You can say it back to me. In me, in you, Clarissa. And we're going to get back to that in a minute. But first, I want us to talk about the obstacles, that we all face, to really even walking into the process of freedom, and then what it's going to take from us to go through the process. First obstacle, biggest obstacle, deception. Deception. Deception is both our biggest obstacle, and it is the reason that we need freedom in the first place. I've come up with this definition of deception that has helped me and helped some other people. But deception, we are deceived when the lie is the truth and the truth is a lie. The lie is the truth for us, but the truth is a lie. It's Eve in the garden with the snake. The snake got her to believe a lie. The lie became her new truth. God is holding out on me. It's true. God's not for me. It's true. I guess I have to do this for myself. The lie became the truth, and the truth became a lie. You know, Coach said on Sunday, that this is a partnership. It's not all God and it's not all us. 
And I'm so thankful that it is a partnership. Because in Jeremiah 17, 9, you can just write that down. I don't think it's up on the screen. It talks about our heart being the most deceptive thing there is. Jeremiah says, who can even know it? Who can even figure out what's in it? It's that deceptive. There's so many lies in there that we think are the truth that we don't know what to believe. But then in the New Testament, in 1 John 3.20, just write that down. 1 John 3.20. John introduces us to this truth. He says that God is greater than our hearts. And I'm going to tell you, I have held on to that verse for years. Because if my heart is deceptive above all things, <laughs> then I need God more than ever before. He's the only one qualified to show us what is in our hearts. And he's the only one who can give us power to do something about what is in our hearts. Deception. It's so, so deceiving. That's all. Yeah, it is. Deception is just deceiving. Isolation, number two. Oh, man, this one gets us. Isolation. We do our best to keep our dysfunction to ourselves. When people get too close, we pull back. Or we put on a mask. Anybody ever put on a mask? We remove ourselves from healthy situations and healthy relationships because we're afraid that people might just see what's messed up in me. Or because of isolation, people try to remove the grave clothes all alone. Can you see it? There's no way Lazarus is getting out of that by himself. And when they try to do it in secret, in isolation, often people are injured. And they end up getting all twisted and turned. And it does more harm than good. When people fall for false teaching, they usually do it in isolation. That's what I found. They're just looking for something to sound the way they want it to sound. And they're just trying to figure it out. They're, peace. they're listening to 12 different pastors every single day for what? I don't even know. They're not applying anything. And they're doing it all by themselves. So what does it take to walk through the process of freedom? What are we going to have to do? What do we need? Coach talked about this on Sunday. We need admission. We're going to have to admit something. I love this definition. A statement acknowledging the truth of something. We got to get some truth. <laughs> we have to admit, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe. Or maybe there's something more. Because we don't like to say there's something wrong. There's something about our pride, that deception in us that's like, no, there's, oh, I'm good, I'm good. But what if there's something more? There's always something more. 
and mission. But there's also a price of admission because it's going to cost us something to go through the process. You may have to pay a counselor. You may have to give up your Wednesday night Netflix binge, Clarissa. Mm-hmm. Oh, but this is where it really costs us. We may have to, we will have to, we must humble ourselves. Which leads us to the second thing it takes, submission. Submission. The action or fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. Mm, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I want to do it my way. Submission. We're going to have to submit to God first. We're going to have to admit in that submission that we need his help and he's the only one who can help us. We might have to submit to a counselor or a teacher or a pastor. And of course, we're going to have to submit to the process itself. It's going to take something out of us. We're going to have to yield some things. We have to give up some things we've been calling rights. Yeah. Submission. It's humbling. But I was thinking about this, you know, over and over in the Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament. We read that God exalts the humble, but he opposes the proud. He stands, as one translation says, kind of in opposition, kind of like, I'm not helping you. You, You're going to have to do, you want to be prideful? Then do it. Because he loves us and he lets us do what we want. Ah! Crazy. But when we humble ourselves, ah, we get in the perfect position for advancement. Submission, admission, it's humbling. But that's when we get the power The grace, the Bible says he gives grace to the humble. He gives power and favor to the humble. That's when we get the power we need for this third thing, and that's commitment. Ooh, because willpower ain't going to cut it. We need the Holy Spirit of God at our back. (laughs) Commitment, the state or quality of being dedicated, dedicated, dedicated to a cause or activity. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some toughness. It's going to take some resilience because there's going to be some setbacks along the way. And we have to be committed to even just getting back up again. Number four, it's going to take community. Community. I love this definition of community because I see the body of Christ, joint ownership or participation. Joint ownership or participation. The stone that was keeping Lazarus in that tomb had to be moved by someone. I just love that. 
If Jesus can resurrect him, come on, he can move a stone. But the picture it gives us, this is a community thing. Get involved. Roll the stone away. And some people had to get close enough to him to take those clothes off. I can just imagine how they felt. I'm I'm hoping they started with the man's head, poor man. I hope they weren't like, hold on, let me get your feet. Like, no, sir. Like, I want to see, I want to hear, I want to, you know. But can you imagine the joy that they felt being a part of this miracle? Someone had to get the man something to wear. This is the stuff I add in the Bible. I'm always like, who went and got him some clothes? Did somebody take something off? And we're like, you can have my tunic. You know, I don't know. But you know, they didn't let the man walk around looking like, you know what? Don't, don't get me teaching at night. You ain't no telling what, you, what you're going to get. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so many people say, all I need is Jesus. And I get what we're saying when we say that. I say that. He is all we need. He is everything. And if everybody else decides to leave us, he's all we got. I get it. But this is the thing that I've always been fascinated with. When he made us alive in him, he put us in a community. He didn't even give us a choice. It wasn't your mama. It wasn't your husband dragging you to church. No, Jesus was the one who said, this is what you need. We're the body of Christ. We're the community of Christ. He didn't leave us in isolation. He put us in community. And this is the part I think we don't like. We're not just going to have to submit to God or even the process. We're going to have to submit to one another. I don't know about that. (laughs) Just, hey. So where do we start this process? Let's talk about it. Paul said, remove the old that is in you and replace it with the new. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 25. Coach had us reading this on Sunday, and I got so excited. I was like, oh, we're going to talk about it all. You know, anyway, it's a total nerd, Bible nerd person, whatever I am. Ephesians 4, 20 through 25. Paul says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Ah, there it is. That's where the truth is. To, again, here we go, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through what kind of desires? Deceitful desires. There's that deception again. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self. It's a process. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, here he goes talking about falsehood again. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one 
another. We are community. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The Good News Translation says it like this. Your hearts and minds must be made completely new. Your hearts and minds must be made completely new. We don't start with our hands. We don't start with our feet. We don't start with what people can see. We start with what they can't see. We start with what we can't see. The usage of the word mind in the Greek vernacular and the Hebrew definitions of heart, mind, and soul, they all work together. They wouldn't have been thinking about our brain, per se. They would have been thinking about our inner life that we talked about a couple of Sundays ago. They would have been talking about their soul, their spirit. This is where we get phrases like soul care and inner healing. It all starts on the inside. The best way to begin the process of freedom, identifying your false core beliefs. Identifying your false core beliefs. Keyword, false. Remember Jesus' words in John 8, 31, 32. If you obey my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the truth makes us free, then lies keep us bound. Come on, Neil, you're getting a prize after this. If the truth makes us free, then lies keep us bound. I want us to think about our core beliefs like our central nervous system. I'm not a healthcare provider. Some of you are. Bear with me. Google is my friend. Core beliefs, central nervous system. In the same way that our central nervous system, our brain, our spinal cord, controls most of the functions of our body and our mind, our core beliefs control most of our thoughts and attitudes, and they help to develop, and this is why it's so, so, so important. They, have, they help to develop the other beliefs we build our lives upon. Maybe you're more of a gardener. Think of our core beliefs as roots. And the rest of our beliefs thoughts, and attitudes are the branches. And this is why we have to start with them. In 2019, I took a counseling class, and when this lecture came on, I didn't really know what to expect, and I'm just taking notes like, you know, normal. And then they start breaking this down, and I'm just sitting there like, oh, my God, poor coach. I got to work the next day. I'm like, I learned this thing last night. And I'm like sending him the whole thing. It was life-changing for me. And what they taught us was if you really want to walk someone you're counseling through a real life change, you better help them first identify their false core beliefs. Because that's what they're really building their life upon. 
And if we build our life on faulty core beliefs, we will keep dealing with the same dysfunction over and over again. So how do you identify your false core beliefs? The same way doctors do. We have to look for our symptoms. What are our symptoms? I love this definition of symptoms. A physical or mental problem that a person experiences that may indicate a disease or condition. A physical or mental problem that a person experiences that may indicate a disease or condition. Another way, same just like doctors, just like scientists, trials and testing. In the trials of life, what comes out? What comes out? In the testing, what is revealed? What grave clothes do we reach for when all heck is breaking loose? So I want to introduce these false core beliefs to you tonight because they were really life-changing for me. Number one, I must meet certain standards to feel okay about myself. I must meet certain standards to feel okay about myself. Here are some of the symptoms. Listen for your, no, listen, no, no, stop, stop, stop. (laughs) Number one, procrastination. Avoiding risks. Anger. Resentment. Perfectionism. Legalism. Judgmental attitude. Performance anxiety. pride. When this is your false core belief, you're always comparing down to make yourself feel better about yourself. At least I'm not like, okay, good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Fear, the predominant fear, fear of failure. When you're getting A's in life, come on, the world is your oyster. And all is right with the world. But when you're getting F's, your world is unstable and shaky. Number two, I must have the approval of certain others to feel okay about myself. Not everyone, certain people. I must have the approval of certain others to feel okay about myself. Some of the symptoms, people-pleasing, shape-shifting. You just have this ability to change on a dime. Whoever's in the room, okay, if I need their approval, I'll act like this. Oh, that, oh they're here, okay, I'm going to be this. 
Codependency. Anxiety. The inability to make decisions for yourself. And you might struggle with saying no, especially to these certain people. You want their approval so bad, and they might not even know it. But it's driving your decisions. Underlying fear, fear of rejection. Questions that kind of go around in your inner life. What do they think about me? Do they see me? Number three, those who fail are unworthy of love, respect, etc., and deserve to be punished in some way. Those who fail are unworthy of love, respect, etc., and deserve to be punished in some way. Symptoms. Blaming others or yourself or God when things don't go the way you think they should. Self-induced punishment. Self-harm. Self-hatred. Harm of others and hatred of others. Bitterness, unforgiveness, withholding love and affection. This is the big one for me. I think we all need to open up our ears. You struggle with being able to accept God's forgiveness, to really live forgiven. What do you fear? You fear condemnation. What do you project? You project condemnation. (laughs) People have felt your wrath. When they mess up, they know it. One of your mottos internally, maybe externally, well, that's what you get. Or that's what I get. Last one, number four. I am what I am. I cannot change. I am what I am. I cannot change. Symptoms. Hopelessness. Recurring bouts of depression. You don't have to have all of them, just some. Excuse making. Victim 
mentality. You would be able to change if it wasn't for everyone else standing in your way. Things could get better if everyone would just give you what you need. You're a victim. Feelings of powerlessness. I don't have the power to change. That's why I can't change. God gives some people power, but he doesn't give me power. And you often lack the ability to finish what you start. Chronic starter. You may think you're lazy. Or even that you just don't care. Well, I just don't care. But really underneath is this core false belief. Deception. Fear. No one really understands what you're going through. And if they knew, they wouldn't help anyway. Hmm. We think maybe even that God can do the impossible in certain areas of our life, but there's no way he can do this. That is what it is. <laughs> it cannot change. Some of our mottos that we always come back to, we even jokingly say them. Well, this is just who I am. Or this is just the way it is. Can you see why these are so damaging? If we want to live in freedom, we have to uncover and uproot our false core beliefs. The first time I heard this, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And even as the professor was talking, I knew mine. I mean, I was like, oh my God, what? Are you kidding me? I've been saved for 13 years and I keep dealing with the same thing. And it's because I'm building my life on that and I didn't even know it. Deception. And as I was going through this list of symptoms, I know the same thing was happening for you. Or maybe just any of the content from tonight. So I'm about to wrap up and review in just a minute. But before we do that, I just wanted to pause because I was literally able to pause the video I was watching. I couldn't keep up with the notes and also my mind was going a thousand places and I was like this is my problem so we're going to pause and I just want you right where you are in your seat you close your eyes just for a couple minutes Austin's just going to play and you're like I came for class Clarissa I didn't come for this no 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 Anytime God's word is opened up, it's time for something good to happen. 
So let's just sit here for a minute. I'm going to come right back and we're going to wrap up. But I just want you to think. Put your eyes closed just sitting there. approval do you crave? When you fail and bad things happen, do you believe that that's just what you get? Just sit there for a minute and think.
can resurrect a dead body. He can help me build a better foundation. It doesn't have to be the way it's always been. That's the good news of the kingdom. It doesn't have to be the way it's always been. A few more things you may want to jot down as we end if we want to live in freedom we have to uncover and uproot and unearth come on those earthly things those false core beliefs but we don't stop there we have to work to replace them with the truth Because the process of freedom is not about managing symptoms. It's about being healed. The process of freedom is not about managing symptoms, which is what so many of us do our whole life. It's about being healed. It's about those memories being redeemed once and for all. Because the process of freedom is not about stopping old things. It's about starting new things. We don't just stop lying. We become obsessed with the truth. We don't just stop stealing. We become generous. And we give every chance we get. We don't just stop cheating on our spouse We learn how to love them the way that Jesus has loved us. And we serve them every single day of our life. It's not about stopping. It's about starting something brand new. And hear me, it's not just about being free. It's really about becoming want just a new life. I want a new and abundant life. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start up our freedom class again here at North Point. Last year, we did it three times, and it was so much fun, wasn't it, Neely? And we saw so many people begin to experience freedom in their lives. One lady came in, and she said she had anxiety her whole life and had been following Jesus for most of that time. And at the end of seven weeks, she told me, I thought you were lying to me when you said, I'm not going to have anxiety anymore in week one. But in week seven, she said, I don't have anxiety. I almost jumped through the Zoom. Okay, I almost teleported like Lazarus. When you watch people walk through the process and you see God do what only he can do, it's amazing. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of these symptoms. And I hope we'll see why we so badly need them out of our lives. 
And I really believe God's going to speak to some of you in this room that you need to go into that freedom class. Maybe you've gone through a freedom class 12 times, but you're just starting to get an inkling that there's more. There's more freedom for you. But then I think some of you are really going to realize there's something wrong. And you're tired of it. You're fed up. So you're going to jump in. We're going to go on that ride together. In review, like Lazarus, we all have some grave clothes that need to be removed. Because we all have memories and mindsets and mannerisms that we need to be repaired and renewed and redeemed. There are two big obstacles standing in our way. Isolation and deception. Where the lie is the truth and the truth is a lie. And to walk through the process of freedom going to have to admit that maybe there's something wrong or maybe there's something more. We have to submit to God and the process and we have to commit to the process because it's going to take consistency and tenacity and resilience and we're going to have to do it all in community. And the best way to begin the process is to uncover and uproot some of our false core beliefs. Let me pray for us and then we're going to dismiss. Lord, thank you so much. We can never thank you enough. You could just make us new and leave us to our own devices, but you always want more for us. So we get in agreement with you tonight that there is more for us. We love you, God. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.